The retirement and IRA show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier and Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. This is the Retirement and IRA Show coming to you from beautiful northern Colorado. Join us as certified financial planner Jim Solnier, as well as Colorado State University finance instructor and certified financial planner Chris Stein, teach you about IRAs, 401ks, annuities, social security, pension plans, and estate planning in a fun and enjoyable show. Whether you are listening live in Colorado or streaming from their website or iTunes podcast, Jim and Chris want you to know that they're available to help you plan for your retirement. Just visit their website at jimhelps.com. That's jim, H-E-L-P-S dot com. And click the Meet the Team button on the homepage. Now here's Jim and Chris with today's show. Well, hello and welcome to the Retirement and IRA Show EDU edition. On today's show, we have a continuation of our conversation we were having last week about uh, uh, a Listener who'd written to us that was kind of revealing how they take some of what we do and we're implementing it in their own approach to their putting together kind of their do-it-yourself retirement plan and kind of running a few things by us. And we were using it as an opportunity to kind of share with people, you all, listeners out there, that uh, how people might be applying what we talk about here and then also gives us a um, an opportunity to talk about how we see retirement, how we approach retirement planning, uh, ultimately for clients. And we openly share our methods on, on the podcast here. And there's a lot of folks out there that, that use some variation of what we do for their own do it yourself approaches to retirement planning. Um, many ways to approach retirement. Ours is just one way. It's fairly unique way as if you've listened for a while, you probably have picked up on that, but, uh, we're going to keep talking about that case because we didn't quite make it through his whole story. And uh, Jim's got it. Jim kind of gave me a heads up as to a few of the elements in uh, uh, yet to come uh, in the email. So I've got some familiarity with it because I uh, didn't have hands on the uh, original email. But uh, Jim will hop in here and we can kind of pick up where we left off and and uh, see if we can't give some general guidance to this listener. And hopefully kind of our comments about this situation for this listener can maybe aid you a bit in how you analyze and, and project and plan for your own retirement. Was that my cue? That'd be you. You always ask that. If I pause awkwardly, then just assume you need to talk. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that's the, that's the hand the official yeah, handoff exactly. and awkward pause <laughs> by Chris. I guess we could come up with some kind of code word or some, some kind of intro phrase. Safe word, isn't that what uh, they say? Give me a safe word. (laughs) Well, that's if you're in some kind of distress or something. I I don't know. Um, Anyways, folks, want to welcome you to another uh, EDU episode. On today's show, we're going to, the gentleman now 
the, the tenor of the email now gets into more specifics about his case, some more specific questions of what we think he might want to do. Uh, one thing I want to let this listener who sent the email know, and all listeners know, we do not have a financial planning relationship with you or any other emailer who has having their question answered on our show. So this is not specific financial planning advice. We certainly don't expect you to say, oh, well, Jim and Chris said this, I'm going to go out and do it. We're just giving you ideas, suggestions, thoughts. It's going to be up to you to do your own due diligence, consult with your own planners if you're using them, if you're a do-it-yourselfer or a true do-it-yourselfer, uh, do your own research and follow-up, and make a determination if what we feel you might want to consider makes sense or not. Just don't act blatantly on what we may or may not say. But a lot of what he starts to get into, Chris, does dive deeper into his situation. And I think you know now because I reviewed it with you. But as listeners will see, this is not an easy situation that this couple is going to find themselves in. And they may have to make some decisions. So before I get into a seesaw analogy that I want this particular listener to think of and all listeners to think of when you project your retirement, I do want to acknowledge, I think this show doesn't play for like a week from now, right? From when we're recording or about five days yeah, from now. Recording a Chris, yeah, I'm going to be yeah, out of the Chris office. Be out of the office. So if anything happens in the world, uh, essentially between Thursday, February 1st, and I think February 7th, when this hits, and Chris and I don't make mention of it, it's because we are pre-recording this days and days in advance. Just always have to do that when we pre-record this far in the future. You don't want something major to happen, and then we do a podcast, and we're not even talking about it. And people are like, how the hell can Jim and Chris not be mentioning this? So now that was my awkward pause for you to say something. Yes, that's good advice. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Pay attention. We got an hour. I am, I am, I'm on board. No, I, I think All that's right. good. You never know when something's going to happen. I mean, um, we usually do record almost immediately before they play. So it is a little odd. The couple times a year, one of us is out of the office and we kind of get ahead a little bit. So that's what we're doing this week is all. And then beginning for the next two weeks, uh, yours truly will be broadcasting from sunny Florida. Although it's been chilly. That, well, for Florida standards, chilly. Uh, only in the 60s and low 70s in Venice. Mm. Uh, and I looked at the 10-day uh, forecast. Uh, pretty much the high is only going to be like 72, uh, 40s and 50s at night, which is far more chillier than it was last year when it was really warm when I was down there. I mean, a couple of times I was sweating the humidity. I, I could feel it, and it was in the 80s. So seems to be a totally different weather pattern that Florida is having this winter. It still sounds pretty uh, nice. Still what? still sounds pretty nice. Have you seen our weather for the last four days? It's been well, 62, 63, 64. You can't count on that all the way through. Plus, it gets a lot colder at night. It stays warmer down there. It, it does. Night, nights in Colorado being a plains desert, uh, even when it's really, really warm, relatively speaking, for Colorado stands right now. Uh, as soon as that sun goes down, you start to feel it. Mm -hmm. Okay, so as we start getting deeper into his questions, listener, last week we just kind of got through some of his more generalized approaches to what he's using from our philosophy. 
he now gets into some more specific questions. And nowhere, no better example uh, could I come up with, let's put it that way, than some of the situation this couple is going to find themselves in, where my analogy of what retirement planning is comes into play. And truly understand this. A lot of people listening to this show, you've got millions of dollars and you may not find yourself in in situations similar to what this couple is going to find themselves in. But many, many, many of our listeners will still need to make some tough decisions. Because no matter how many times I tell you guys this, retirement planning is a negotiation between you And who else, Chris? And the older you. The older you. That's all retirement planning is. When you get to the point of being in your 60s, as this couple is, and wanting to retire, as this couple did, and they're in their early 60s, you either have the money or you don't. And if your retirement is going to be based on needing to earn a certain level of return, or especially if you're doing a Monte Carlo-based probability statistic analysis for your retirement, and the only way perhaps to get your quote-unquote success rate up to maybe 80 or 85%, and I'm making these percentages up, it's whatever you feel is a reasonable number. The only way to get it up is to increase your risk Uh, tolerance or your risk investments in your portfolio, say from moderate to moderately aggressive or aggressive. If you have to do that, if you have to earn a certain minimum rate of return or take on an extreme amount of risk, which only allows you in the software to project a higher potential return, if that's the only way your plan is going to work, perhaps you shouldn't be considering retirement. But Everybody is going to find themselves in a situation where retirement is a negotiation. And that negotiation is between you and the older you. And again, I'm 60 now. Chris will be in a couple more years. We may not feel young. And I certainly don't think 60 is young, especially with this beard that I have, which I can't wait to shave (laughs) off. Um. I think I look older with it and feel older with it. But my point is, even though I don't feel young at 60, when I'm 80, I will look back at 60 and I know I'm going to think, God, I wish I was 60 again. And I used to think that was old. Because that's exactly the way I felt when I was 40 and 50 and thought back to when I was a 36-year-old cop getting ready to resign and move to Colorado. At the time when I was 36, I thought I was old. I was, quote unquote, almost 40. And I thought nearly half my life is over. And I've wasted it. I could have been in Colorado decades ago. I honestly felt I was old. It's all relative. Today, I think 36 is young. So when I'm 80, I will think 60 is young. There will always be an older you. And the younger you is you today. And what retirement planning is, is the negotiation between the younger you and the older you. Chris and I believe passionately in what we call the secure retirement income process and the concept of the quote unquote fun number. 
But we also feel to get your fund number, to truly determine out of your wealth that you have amassed, how much of it can you truly spend on fun? You must first make an explicit promise to the older you that their minimum dignity floor is going to be fully covered with lifetime guaranteed secure income, which is income that will continue for the rest of their life, whether they have money or not. We believe in that passionately. After the minimum dignity floor is taken care of, to us, it's optional on how you want to cover your aging reserve and long-term care reserve. And that'll come into play with this listener's question. Whether you want to fund what we call a pre-funded, I used to call it guaranteed, but now I use the verbiage pre-funded. I think it resonates more with what the intent of a pre-funded inheritance is. In other words, you're going to put money aside and leave it for an inheritance. You're going to pre-fund the inheritance, but you're not necessarily going to guarantee it. If you need those dollars for something, they are available, but you're going to pre-fund it by removing it from your fund number. That's where it's going to come from, removing it from your fund number and not spending it on fun. But if you need it in the future, by all means, you will take it. So that's what I like to, to reference pre-funded. And I felt the word guaranteed was confusing people that they put money in a guaranteed inheritance that's off limits. And then if you want to leave a buffer or reserve for the older you, in case all the numbers that you are crunching <clears throat> turn out to be wrong. And I can all but guarantee you they will. The only accurate thing I can say about your retirement plan is every number you are projecting will be wrong. That's about as accurate as I can get. And you might be thinking, why the heck would anybody want to work with an advisor if everything they're telling them is wrong? Or why would I, as a do-it-yourself, even want to bother figuring out if everything I'm doing is wrong? Because even though the hundreds, if not thousands of data points that your software or your Excel spreadsheet is analyzing may in and of themselves be wrong. The trends that those numbers, those individual numbers demonstrate is quite accurate. And that's what you have to pay attention to are the trends, not the accuracy of a number. Do you really think you're going to be able to project what your cell phone bill at age 83 is going to be? Seriously? I don't even know if there'll be a cell phone bill at age 83. But I know there'll be some type of communication expense. So don't fixate on trying to get every single number accurate. Because it won't be. That's about the only accurate thing about retirement planning is every number is probably inaccurate. But the trends those numbers show, even if the numbers themselves are wrong, it's called the law of large numbers. The trends are fairly accurate. And that's what you're going to be looking for. It's what we look for when we work with our clients. And that's what you should be looking for if you're a do-it-yourselfer. Just kind of what are the trends indicating? And that's going to come into play a little bit with this gentleman when I walk through some of the numbers. And we didn't crunch the numbers. We didn't put it into our software. We didn't do an analysis for them. But Chris and I have been doing this long enough. We can make some very generalized assumptions and some very generalized advice that he and you may want to follow. So with that little lead in tirade, anything you want to add to it? No, I think most of the challenges in retirement can really be boiled down to what you mentioned about this trade-off. 
uh, older you prep preparedness versus younger you desire to spend on things uh, for you know immediate fulfillment and few you know there's every once in a while somebody you run across that has so many resources that they can fulfill all obligations without a whole lot of effort or thought but um, most of the people who are interested in doing detailed retirement planning it's because they know they don't have an overabundance no you know no worries in the world they've got to uh, likely make some choices or maybe they're not even sure what trade-offs need to be made until they look at things and then the trade-offs become pretty clear here so you know always you know keep that in mind that it's a negotiation trade-off that uh, it's not all about the older you not all about the younger you but uh, something you know the balances uh, appropriately for you and different people will find different balances one one trade-off for one person isn't going to be appropriate for another because they just view life a bit differently. So you'll have to kind of customize it on your own, but it is pretty much all about trade-offs. Absolutely. And it's going to change. So retirement planning is not a set it and forget it, a one and done type endeavor. You're going to have to be reviewing it constantly. You don't even know. Again, I told you, I looked at the 10 day forecast for Venice, Florida recently, as recently as this morning. I can all but guarantee you the temperature that I'm going to experience on day 10. I don't have my iPad open in front of me, so I don't know what they're predicting 10 days from now. I can't remember. But I can guarantee you what is actually experienced will be different than what they're projecting today. So what you're projecting 10 years from now, it ain't going to happen. We're totally different because things are going to happen to you between now and 10 years that you never even saw coming. That's why you have to be able to react quickly when things go wrong. That's the whole concept of the reserve buffer. We acknowledge things are going to happen for the better or for the worse, but things are going to happen. If they happen for the better, oh, horror, you have more money than you thought. But if they happen for the worse and you spent those dollars on fun, you only spend a dollar once, there might be some regret. You might have great memories, but you might have a little bit of regret too. So even when we help people uh, develop their fund number through the concept we call the see-through portfolio, how we help break up the portfolio based on the spending tasks of minimum dignity floor, aging and LTC, pre-funded inheritance, buffer reserve, go-go, slow-go, no-go, fund spending. When we start to break all this up for them, one of the ones that people always ask is – Well, what do you think I should do for my buffer or reserve? And my standard answer, I don't know what yours is, Chris. I'll let you opine in a second. My standard answer is whatever you want. It's an emotional number. I can't tell you. Whatever money we put in there is going to come from your fund. Now, a few people have what we call non-positioned assets. Um, In other words, they've got so much in, in wealth They can take care of their conceivable vision of what their fund is going to be and still have money left over. We're not talking about those people. For most people, it feeds up from their fund number as they put the money in the emotional buffer reserve. But that's to protect you if things go wrong. And because you can only spend a dollar once, we have to ask our clients as we help them, what do you want to put in there? 
So you need to think of that as well as you start trying to break your portfolio up, which is what this gentleman is asking for, and we'll start getting into his email. But these are things that you need to look for as you do this on your own. And it comes back to that seesaw analogy. The younger you is on the left, the older you is on the right. If we pull money to a buffer reserve or to an aging LTC reserve, we're pulling that money from the fund and we're giving it to the right side of the seesaw. So that part of the seesaw is going up. But the cost of that is you going down. you got less money to spend on fun. Conversely, if we pull money from the aging LTC reserve or the buffer reserve or whatever position you might want to put that money in, if we pull those dollars out and put it into your fund number, makes you go up on the seesaw because it gives you the ability to spend more right now on your wants at the expense of potentially future needs for the older you. So that part of the seesaw, the older you, is going down. It's quite simple. Retirement planning is a damn seesaw ride, and it's always going to change. I told a person recently, I I started delivering plans again. I know I've been saying for the past four years, I don't do this anymore, but we are training uh, a new uh, planner in our office. I say new. We hired Jake uh, on my birthday last year, July 24th of last year. Uh, We hired him on my birthday. And he will be delivering plans. And Chris and I are in the process of training him to do deliveries. So I've come out of retirement, so to speak, and started delivering plans again recently in an effort to teach uh, Jake how to deliver plans. And recently, there was a person we were talking with, and I was using the seesaw analogy. And I ended up telling her, As you go through and try to figure out these last few positions, especially the buffer reserve, and her situation was a little tight. It was not impossible, but it was a little bit tight. I told her, Chris, her seesaw ride is in a windstorm. She's going to have to look at it all the time because there's just things that could go either way that could blow in favor of the right side of the seesaw or the left side the younger you or the older you. So do keep that in mind that some people, many people, are going to have enough money, but not enough where this is going to be a, a easy task. It's one that needs to be looked at quite often. It's one that might not be quite as easy as you would hope. It's like trying to balance a seesaw in a windstorm. It's really hard because the wind is blowing you around. Any thoughts on that before I get into his uh, email? No, that's a new one. You're kind of springing on us, the uh, seesaw in a windstorm idea. I thought of that the other day when I was helping Jake mm-hmm. deliver a plan. Yeah. Like that, huh? I think I like it. Wow. You gave me a compliment. You like something I did. Normally. I'm thinking about Chris, liking it. I'm Chris not doesn't sure. like most of the stuff I come up with, folks. He <laughs> tolerates me. I, I appreciate Chris very much. And that's from the heart. Um, I'm not an easy person sometimes to work with. But um, thank you that you like that analogy. Yeah. No, I think it's good visual. And just, you know, you're trying to, you think you got it balanced, but then something kind of pushes, you know, something just comes up and you got to put a little effort into rebalancing. Right. The money is tight where there's not enough to overcome that. Seesaw ride in a windstorm. Okay. And this email reminds me 
of a seesaw ride in a windstorm. Mm. You'll see where I'm going with this, listeners. Chris, I did run through this with you so you could write some numbers down um, and definitely give your thoughts as well. Um, I'm just coming out of retirement again on delivering plans. You've been doing this for the last four years for the firm. So I want you to, to share a lot. Okay. If you have no idea what we're talking about, go back and listen to the first show, the first episode uh, from last week's EDU. We covered the beginning part of his email. I'm just jumping right in to where Chris and I left off. No explanation, no recap. So <clears throat> he continues, Chris. And let me see, I just want to get his age. He's 62. So keep that in mind, listener and Chris. 62 years old. Mm -hmm. um, he's technically retired now, but his wife will be retiring in five. Well, let me see. When did he send this email? She might be retired now. No, he sent it January 2nd. So I know he spent his holiday writing this email. Mm -hmm. uh, so she retires in five months. So I guess in May. So on the first of this year. Okay, so here's their financial plan, excuse me, their financial picture, listeners and Chris. He has a $30,000 per year pension. And I believe, let me, I have to scroll down to his email. I believe when he dies, he loses half of it. Yeah, I think it was a joint in 50. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, I can't see that now. No, that that was the case on his pension. It was a 50%. Was it? Okay, I know I reviewed it with you. Okay, yeah. so joint in 50. So he has, folks, a $30,000 per year pension. If he dies, his wife gets $15,000. As you remember, they have $800,000 between him and his wife of liquid assets. As you will also recall from last week's show, he made an emotional decision, and Chris and I told him we neither support it or disagree with it. In light of a lot of what he shares now in his email on this show, I'm leaning more towards what he did is probably reasonable, but he took half of it, 400000 and he bought an additional stream of income of $20,000 a year growing at 3% annually, 100% joint survivor for him and his wife. Okay, so keep following along with this at home, for those playing along at home. Um, when his wife retires, this is where you might come in with Social Security planning, Chris. When my wife retires this year, she plans on taking her Social Security immediately the pension between the pension our new annuity and her social security it should provide 75 percent of our minimum dignity floor now i'm going to bop around in the email because he, he he it's all over the place folks i believe his mdf was quite high yes i'm going to scroll down a little bit and i'll go back up and continue reading so now I'm later in his email. Our minimum dignity floor is 94000 a year, which covers all of the essentials you review, 
which for those who don't know is food, utilities, transportation, housing, and healthcare expenses, and all the subcategories of those expenses. As well as, and this is something we don't normally see, but for many people, they want it to be part of their minimum dignity floor, charitable giving. A lot of times, Chris and I will fund charitable giving as a discretionary, quote-unquote, fun thing. And it can be fun. Giving money to your children and giving money to your charities during your lifetime so you can actually see them doing something beneficial with those dollars can be fun. Literally is fun. We personally don't believe in annuitizing, making that giving a mandatory part of your minimum dignity floor, fully covered with lifetime guaranteed secure income. Because any charity at its core should say to you, goodness, as much as we can use your money, you need it more. Thank you for your largesse, but no, you keep it. You need it. If you pass away and there's some left, then we'll take it. We take that approach personally, and I would hope most charities would as well. I don't think a charity is very charitable if they're going to take money from people that they know in their heart can't afford this. But that's the reason why we don't believe in annuitizing and fully protecting those dollars as part of minimum dignity floor. He gives no indication. Is this just $500 a year or 50 that Well, 50 wouldn't be possible with a $94,000 MDF. But is he talking $500 a year or $5,000 a year or $8,000 a year? I don't know. I don't know what he's talking about as part of his charitable. Now, that's not to say it's wrong. It's what he believes in, and it works for him. You don't have to do what we believe in. Anything you want to add, Chris, to that? Yeah, I think uh, just people struggle with this a lot of times, and they're deciding what they should put into their minimum dignity floor. And some people view it as, you know, the the stuff we definitely want to cover. That's, a, a, I think, a little loose of a definition. And the reason is this. Uh, and maybe you have uh, others out there applying their version of what we do, have a different view of what the minimum dignity floor represents. But in our eyes, we're establishing the minimum dignity floor estimate for one purpose, to determine if you have enough secure income to cover that, which means we are trying to figure out what expenses need to be covered if you ran out of assets and you were relying just on the secure income. And if that's the way you're looking at the minimum dignity floor, when it comes to something like charity, you simply have to ask yourself this. If I ran out of assets, would I still want to make sure that I'm making these charitable donations? If your answer to that question is yes, then it needs to be part of your minimum dignity floor. If you ran out of assets, if you looked at that and you're thinking, if that were to happen, which I know a lot of people probably is not likely, but if it were, if you literally had no assets left, would you want to make sure to still make the charitable donations? And they say no, then it's not like they're saying, no, we don't want to fund the charity. It's just that we're going to put that in the discretionary pool and we're not going to try to include it in the minimum dignity floor, which leads to the secure income definition. So that's how we view it. And and it isn't just charity. There's other things. I've, I've run across several people 
over time, many people actually, that will throw in some random things kind of, and, and they say, we want to include this in their minimum dignity floor. And I appreciate what they're trying to say, which is this is important to us and we want to do it. But I will tell you more times than not when I ask them that question, if you ran out of assets, do you want to still make sure this is covered? When they when I phrase it like that, they usually say no. <laughs> if we really run out of assets, we don't really need this in our minimum dignity floor. Then we leave it out. We put it in the discretionary pool. So I guess that would be one way in your mind if you're struggling with what should go in, what should not. You can certainly put it in, but the ramifications of including it are you're going to define then for yourself a higher level of secure income need than you otherwise might have. And if you're okay with that, essentially annuitizing in order to cover this, in this case, charity, if it's that important to you, then you do it. And you it's your plan, you're free to do it. That's drifting a little bit outside of the intentions we have for what we can, you know, what we perceive the minimum dignity floor to be. Okay. And for those of you who might be thinking, geez, 94,000 seems awfully high for a minimum dignity floor. It is. We've seen higher, but this would definitely score in the top 10%, I think, of high minimum dignity floors. But we have no guidance on how much of that 94000 is charitable, yeah. which technically should be subtracted out of that 94000 at least in our opinion, not his. And that doesn't make either of us right. It's just anecdotally speaking that 94000 is a little bit high compared to what we see. But when you adjust for the charity... And the fact that he shares with us in his email as well, Chris, he has a $1,100 a month mortgage payment. Yeah. That's about another $13,000 a year. Yep. You subtract that out, you're down to 81000 Subtract out five dollars or $10,000 for charitable giving, you're down to maybe seventy seventy five thousand MDF. High, but not high, depending on what part of the country he may live in. Is he in... Um, we just worked with someone recently in Seattle. That's a very expensive state and city to live in. San Francisco, where Chris will be in the fall for the Schwab conference. Very expensive. So you have to look at it also in light of where he lives. He doesn't indicate in his email what state he's from or what city he's in. So the 94000 may seem high at first blush, but I think there's two anomalies in there. Yeah. yeah. And to point out, we usually don't we, – we don't – uh, generally include mortgage payments in the minimum dignity floor because we handle those separately for the same reason. The whole concept that minimum dignity floor is what determines your secure income need, which if you're having to generate more secure income, which essentially means income annuity, because if you don't have enough, have the pension and things this person's been talking about, that's the only logical place to go get more lifetime guaranteed secure income is an insurance company with an income annuity of some type. Um, we're not big fans of annuitizing to cover a mortgage payment for a couple, I think, rational reasons. One, the mortgage payment doesn't go forever. Eventually, it'll be paid off. So then you have uh, this income that you've got that you're handing over. But then when the mortgage payment stops, you now have maybe too much secure income for, you know, for covering what you really needed to cover. So you've kind of over annuitized at that point. And secondly, I'm not sure it makes a whole lot of sense to enrich two financial institutions simultaneously uh, by paying one institution interest while then having, you know, the enriching an insurance company with an annuity, you could cut out, you know, those two completely by more directly paying the mortgage from the resources you would otherwise annuitize. So 
not that it in some cases can make sense, but generally we would not include the mortgage payments in the minimum dignity floor. We would have looked to their liquid assets and looked at a different way of deploying them to satisfy the mortgage whether it's all at once or over time, but not annuitizing for it, which means not including it in the minimum dignity floor. Yeah, I just want to reword what you said because I can already hear the feel, the emails coming in. I can hear the people typing right now. We're not saying a debt payment of a mortgage is not minimum dignity floor. It is 100%. What we are saying When it comes to determining if a client needs an annuity, and if so, should we annuitize, we will not include the mortgage at that point as part of the minimum dignity floor. We would rather just pay the mortgage off with assets rather than taking client assets and annuitizing it to, as Chris said, enrich the insurance company to continue enriching the bank guaranteeing your mortgage, just rule both of that situation out take the money that would have went into the annuity and just pay the mortgage off with it. So right. I, I do want to yeah. make sure as you do your own MDF, don't say, oh, no, mortgage isn't part of my MDF and leave it out. It is a payment you must make. How you fund that payment if you need additional secure income. If you have ample Social Security and pension where your mortgage is more than covered, you can continue to pay it with your Secure Mm -hmm. income if you'd like. It's only if you're going to have to annuitize do we then subtract the mortgage out. We net out the mortgage payment of the minimum dignity floor. We then compare that netted out mortgage to their current secure income. The difference between the two is what we would annuitize. The remaining mortgage we didn't forget about. It's just going to be covered with a lump sum payment. Uh, hopefully a tax advantage lump sum payment where we'll try to determine maybe we pay the mortgage off in one lump sum because you have enough in a Roth, which a a person working with us recently uh, did, going to take a bunch of money out of their Roth. Um, Other people, it might be, well, I'm going to pay this mortgage off over five years and take it all from my IRA. I'm going to pay it off over three years by realizing some of these cap gains, whatever. We would look at a more tax advantage way to pay that remaining mortgage off. Anyways, don't want to get too deep into that, but I could already hear people writing, how can you not be considering mortgage yeah. part of your minimum dignity floor? No, I, <laughs> I, I appreciate the clarification for people because it really is all about how the MDF expenses are used to determine extra secure income you might need. And that's where we would strip the, the mortgage out of that conversation and, and fund it differently. Right. Okay. So let me scroll back up. And I apologize, folks. I have to keep scrolling back and forth through here because the information that I want to review is not laid out intuitively. I have to keep going. I just think if you would have printed out on paper, you could just flop back and forth so quickly. I know. It's a hell of a lot easier than scrolling on an (laughs) iPad. All right. You know what I hate the most? I, I, I use the iPad and my laptop. And the iPad, I touch the screen. The laptop, I have to use a little flat thing there. What do you call it? The trackball? No, the trackpad, trackpad, whatever the hell it is. I always forget and I keep trying to touch the screen on my laptop. I got to get a new laptop with a a touch screen because I'm so used to touching the screen of the iPad Mm, and then I try to do it on the laptop and I get all confused. Okay. I digress. Okay. So he continues with his social security question. My wife, my wife will retire this year, and she plans on taking her Social Security immediately. The pension, 
the Social Security, excuse me, the pension, our annuity, and her Social Security will provide 75% of our minimum dignity floor. My Social Security, which I have not started collecting, will be higher than my wife's and will provide the remaining 25% we need to fund our minimum dignity floor. If I start claiming even this year at age 63, this will leave us 400000 for our fund number and long-term care aging needs, should we require it someday. I know you guys probably recommend I delay taking my Social Security and instead use part of the 400000 to fund the remaining 25% of our minimum dignity floor we need. But I'm inclined not to go that route. Given that I've watched several friends my age die in recent months, and with the break-even age for taking Social Security being age 78, I think I would just like to secure the lifetime minimum dignity for needs of us now and use my 400000 to get my party going. Little smiley face. I'm torn on this one. I'll talk well, first and I'll let you chime in. Okay. So look at what he's done, listeners. He had a, just 800000 Now, y'all might be saying, what about his house? What about his house? What about equity? I'll let the bag out of the cat. He said that he is going to contemplate selling his house to get rid of the $1,100 a month mortgage. And that's all he said. He would downsize. So Chris and I had to come to the conclusion net of paying off his mortgage he anticipates having enough equity remaining that he will be able to buy a house outright. So this $94,000 minimum dignity floor, if he does that, will all of a sudden, according to my math, become about $81,000 with a good portion, well, with a portion of that being charitable which I'm still going to encourage him to consider more desired if you've got it, give it, rather than required. Because as you guys can probably start to picture, he doesn't have a lot of money going around here. There's not a lot of assets here. He's on a seesaw between the younger him and the older him in a windstorm. This is going to be a lot of give and take. So now you can see why I, I led today's show by saying, unlike last week where I didn't uh, share the whole email, I now feel a little bit more okay with him taking half of the 800000 and buying an annuity with it through his employer. He bought this through the state he used to work for to give them $30,000 a year growing at, it was, oh, it's a 20, 20 or 30, I forget. 20. Uh, 20, was it? Mm-hmm. 20. Is that what you said? Yes. Okay. 20,000 a year growing at 3%. They need more secure income. I like the idea of downsizing your home. Your home is an asset. It's an illiquid asset that many of us will need to tap. You've got no choice. You've got to tap it. 
but you can't rip off a bunch of roofing shingles and walk down the street and buy dinner with it at a restaurant. Restaurant's going to say, hey, I like your roofing shingles, but I need money. To get money out of your home, to get money out of illiquid assets in general, you pretty much have to pay for it. You got to pay by taking out debt against it. In the case of a home, it will most likely be a refi or a HELOC. Or if you're over the age of 62, which him and his wife are, you could do it via reverse mortgage, where you could borrow about half the equity, and the remaining equity is used to pay the accruing interest and debt of the half you borrowed. But you don't get the full value of your home unless you sell it. And just think of the math behind what this gentleman may do. If he sells his home outright and improves his cash flow to the tune of $13,000 a year, that's $13,000 less annuitization you need to do. Just quickly, Chris, as I'm rambling, if you have access to Canix, what would, and we know these people are 63 years old. Um, I'm assuming they're both the same age. What would it cost for a 63-year-old to get an annuity that pays $13,000 a year for the rest of their life. No cost of living increase because mortgage payments won't increase. And because we don't know how long his mortgage is going to last, let's just assume it's 30 years. So it takes him to 93 or say life expectancy. If he downsizes his home, he's effectively going to be saving that much of forced annuitization cost. So I do like his idea of downsizing the home and getting rid of that $1,100. If he did that sooner rather than later, it might allow him to defer his Social Security. He doesn't want to defer the Social Security because, number one, he says he sees friends dying. But don't forget, folks, his pension is not 100% joint and survivor. Only the annuity is that he recently purchased. He admits later in this email that at the death of one spouse, the smaller Social Security goes away, which is his wife's, and she will be claiming it this year at 62 or 63, I forget. If he claims his also at 63 this year, he's permanently locking the survivor into a low Social Security benefit, substantially low. But he's loath to spend the 400000 of liquidity he has because he wants to get this party going. I love that verbiage. Isn't there a song on that? Let's get this party. Is there something like that? Help me out here. Is there a song? I think it's Let's Get This Party Started. Oh, you sure let's get this party started and I'll get this party going? I think it's started, but. Well, I don't know. So I'm not into hip hop, so I don't know. But anyways, I love that. It's the whole belief we have. Fun number. He's on a seesaw ride in a, in a windstorm. It, it's difficult to balance this, folks. Home equity is often overlooked, but it can be sometimes your largest asset. Getting rid of that mortgage would help. Now, if he wants to stay in his house and not downsize, perhaps a reverse mortgage to wipe out the debt he has on his current mortgage could help. But I place a lot of value in trying to get his Social Security delayed because when he when he dies, half his pension, his $30,000 pension, half that goes away. 
He shares with us later in the email, I probably won't have a chance to read it all because I don't want to turn this into a three-part series, but he shares with us, folks, that at his death, his wife is only going to be able to cover about 60% of her minimum dignity floor needs because he loses his, she loses half his pension and all of her social security. So having a larger survivor benefit is crucial. Remember, Chris and I say it's an explicit promise. The younger you must make the older you. And it's not an explicit promise to the older wife that if you die first, she's going to have her minimum dignity floor covered. She's not. And having the extra secure income, I think, of your higher Social Security benefit would help. And I think one of the best ways to do that is to get rid of your mortgage and rather than turning your Social Security on early to keep you from debiting from your 400000 stop debiting 13000 a year into mortgage payments. And that might allow you to delay your Social Security a little bit longer. I think that's going to be more valuable. Did you get that number of what that would be? Yeah, 13000 a year forever joint survivor for a couple of 60 three-year-olds, $215,000. So that's kind of the value, not exactly, because we don't know the end date of that mortgage. I had to assume forever or 30 years, which theoretically could be forever. But it kind of gives you an idea of the value of downsizing your home. And if it can work and you want to move, I mean, you don't want to go through something and then not enjoy it. But if you could downsize, I I would be more prone to that to get rid of the mortgage and delay your social security longer. Now, for those of you who are wondering, he does have life insurance if he dies earlier, but it's a term policy that expires in 17 years when he's 80. And by his own admission, if he lives one day longer, then his wife's up a creek without a paddle. And she will have less secure income than she needs. His hope is that the remaining 400000 assuming it wasn't spent down, can be used by her to help cover the minimum dignity floor. Uh-huh. What are your thoughts, Chris? Well, my initial thought is if, if you are considering going the, down the path this person has, I would take issue with them spending that initial $400,000 on the, the annuity that they already purchase. So we can't undo that for this person or recommend that or suggest they relook into this. But after you've now read more of this, my guess is they would have found if they did an analysis that delaying his social security provided a better trade-off deal for secure income than that annuity that he purchased. Now, we don't know that for sure because we don't have all the details uh, you know, laid out here, but through the you know little back of the envelope sketches that I've got going on here as Jim talks, they may not of and, and and I think what's happening here is they've got a plan where they're going to he's put too much focus on secure income for the couple and didn't do enough looking at what happens when one of them passes away, particularly him, because when she passes away, it's not as impactful because he gets to keep all of his pension. But because of that half cut in a fairly substantial pension, you know, they're going to lose $15,000 a year that when cases like that occur, the best offset I usually see is people 
creating the largest survivor benefit from the Social Security as possible, which means getting it to 70. Now, he's already spent half of his liquid assets buying this annuity. So that's, like I said, the water under the bridge issue. Um, so he can't probably reanalyze this. He's going to have to do the best he can with what he's got left. But someone else looking at this, this is you should look at this and the trade-offs because people people constantly undervalue Social Security, particularly the higher benefit. He's his benefit is the joint and hundred percent survivor style benefit because it's his that's going to last as long as either of them do. Hers is a little different story because hers is going to stop at the first passing. Um, you know, by definition, earlier than the other one. But his is a full equivalent to a joint and 100% survivor pension style with an actual CPI-based inflation adjustment attached to it, which is very helpful in the long term for protecting things like the minimum dignity floor. So now that you've read more, we've talked about we haven't really been concerned about what he did. I'm not sure it was the best approach for him, but He's now got to deal with it. He's got to make the best of, of the situation. It doesn't mean he's doomed by any means, but I think he might have found through the proper analysis that an alternative approach to generating secure income might have been better. Um, now moving forward, I would have a hard time. He's starting to assign a lot of jobs to this remaining 400000 He's saying, hopefully some of that's left for her. Um, we got to maybe... Um, you know, deal with. I'll, I'll share more. Keep, keep yeah. that thought in your head. Okay. So he shares, folks, and Chris. He wants to debit four to five percent a year, or sixteen to twenty thousand dollars from the four hundred thousand to spend on fun. He also wants to keep it as a long-term care reserve and as an emergency if he dies after age eighty, when his life insurance is gone to help his wife. At 400000 is being tasked with doing a lot. Yeah, now there's a third job. I was thinking just the fun has to come out of there, plus there's got to be something left for her if his life insurance is passed. You know, he lives to 80 years old in one day. Um, but now you've thrown in a third third one. You're, the, the, I mean, you've, you've nailed it. There's a lot of jobs now being tasked with you know that coming out of that 400,000 I don't know how it can handle all that stress one other thing before I'll interrupt again there is a chance he doesn't indicate how much he doesn't say strong chance he says a possible quote unquote possible chance his wife will inherit $200,000 it's again tough for us to say great or not because we have no idea. But that's a possibility, Chris. The wife may inherit 200000 So that four could theoretically be six. But even if it was six, it's still being asked to do a lot. It's being asked to distribute sixteen to 20000 a year, I would assume, adjusted for inflation. It's being asked to be a reserve for aging and long-term care needs, which for many people, 600000 is the amount in total they're putting aside. And it's being asked to help the wife if he should pass away after age 80 because she's not going to have enough secure income. It's estimated she'll be 40% low on her secure income needs. I still don't think 600000 is truly enough. Okay, you can continue. Yeah, and, and yeah. you nailed it with your one comment about the LTC aging reserve. 
if you want to have decent you know protections for that and you are self-funding meaning you don't have the help and you haven't mentioned any so i assume there isn't any uh long-term care insurance um that's going to take a big bite as, as far as a set aside out of that 600,000 that's even potential we're not even sure the 600 exists yet we're only dealing with 400 here and a hopeful in- inheritance so that kind of wipes out the potential for a fund number if you're going to reserve for LTC uh, in aging, which uh, sounds like you know it's at least on their mind because they mentioned it, which isn't really practical to have a tinier non-existent fund number, then you know why retire if you're not going to have any embellishments above the minimum dignity floor? So that kind of leads me to believe that um, their long-term care planning has got to involve an assumption that Medicaid is going to be the fallback um, for one or both of them in combination with potentially, you know, put, putting that off a little bit with some home equity as a reserve. You know, I, I do think they're going to be scratching around for additional resources, having only $400,000 um, uh, left after, I mean, their bottom line story, it sounds like, is after satisfying their minimum dignity floor, they've only got $400,000 left. That's not a lot to do much uh, beyond, you know, one job maybe. You know, yes, it could be fun for a while, but if it's fun, it can't be uh, long-term care reserves. Can't do both of those things. Um, so, and a protection and an inheritance. Excuse me yeah. for a survivorship scenario. Yeah. So here are some thoughts running through my mind. Let's go back to two things. Let's go back to the. Remind me to go back to the seesaw because mm-hmm. I'll forget. I'm going to go and I want two things. I'm going to go with the second direction first. Back to the reverse, excuse me, back to the paying off the house, the downsizing of the house. I still like that. But you would have to be willing to want to move. That's going to be key. I I don't like people who have to sell a house they love and move to a neighborhood they don't want to be in. That to me isn't a fun way of enjoying retirement. But you seem very receptive to it when you mentioned it in your email. You didn't say, regrettably, if we have to, you just says, hey, another thing we're thinking of is to get rid of the mortgage by downsizing. And many people like to downsize as they age. But you could kind of do a twofer. Selling the current home you have, again, Chris and I have to assume that you're going to be able to walk away with enough equity after paying off your current mortgage to buy your downsized home. Let's just assume that's what's happening because you didn't indicate to me any other verbiage that would say, well, hint to me that that's not the case. When you go to buy your home, assuming you don't want to leave it to someone, you could consider taking out a reverse mortgage to cover half the purchase price of the home. Mm -hmm. Let's just say for all intent and purposes, you're going to have $400,000 left to go buy your home. Just making that number up out of thin air. After you pay off your debt on your existing home, you got 400 grand. You could just put 200 grand down. The other 200,000 is is, um, backed by a reverse mortgage, which is non-recourse debt. You don't have to pay it back ever. When you die, when both of you die, or move out permanently, in other words, you're essentially going to be uh, sent to a nursing home, then the house gets paid off, 
excuse me, sold the remaining 50% equity in your home because you can only borrow half. The remaining 50% Whoa. is used to pay off the debt of the other 50% you you leveraged. If there's not enough money, the government bails them out, not you. HUD, Housing and Urban Development, essentially took over, for all intent and purposes, this part of the reverse mortgage market. And they provide the insurance for most people. There are some uh, reverse mortgages that HUD doesn't insure. Those are generally private reverse mortgages for very wealthy people who exceed the, the limits that the government will cover. But these people are not going to fall into that category. So that could, in my hypothetical example, free up another 200000 of liquidity. You're always going to have that same net worth after doing all this on day one. It's just I'm looking at the liquidity. You don't have access to that liquidity. And you don't even have to take the 200000 out in liquidity. We recently spoke a couple of days ago. Uh, with one of our clients on a joint call with a reverse mortgage specialist that they're working with to do a strategy similar to what I described. But they are not going to take the remaining assets out as a distribution. They're going to keep it in the reverse mortgage and as a line of credit. And under the current estimates that the reverse mortgage person writing to me, and these are not guaranteed, they can end up higher or lower, It is being estimated that the line of credit will grow at 7.355% forever, every year. Now, there's a lot of caveats to that, how they came up with that number. They have to follow very strict illustration guidelines from HUD. So they're not pulling this out of their heinies. They're following HUD rules to demonstrate what they think that line of credit will grow by except it's not guaranteed. It could grow more or it could grow less. The highest it would grow is 13.8% in any given year, but it could go higher than 7.355 or lower on average. But my point to the person we were chatting uh, with, the client that we were sitting in with on this conversation was, that's a pretty good growth rate that if it happened, it's a compelling thought. So when you do the reverse mortgage to own strategy that I described, when you take half of the money and put it down, um, you can do that, obviously, or you could take all of your money and buy the house and then open a reverse mortgage line of credit on half the value of your home. You can't do it on all, but you do it on half. And that line of credit is guaranteed to grow every year by a certain amount. That varies every year. It can go higher or lower than illustrated. But right now, this reverse mortgage was illustrating a 7.355. So if you decide not to do the reverse mortgage to own strategy, you might want to open up a reverse mortgage line of credit. You don't even have to draw on it. Now, there'll be some closing costs to open the line of credit, a couple of thousand dollars, but that might be worth it. And that line of credit is guaranteed to grow and you can tap it at any time in the future, even if the line of credit grows faster than the appreciation of your home. And you now have a line of credit that's higher than half the value of your home. You get to borrow the higher line of credit. So I'm just suggesting to you that you learn how to access this illiquid 
equity that you have and learn to use it and you can get some some liquidity from it. It's an asset that you can't spend. The analogy I gave uh, our particular client that we were working with was uh, that, that the equity in your home is like a toy. You want to get at it. You want to play with it. But the toy is locked behind a glass counter. And you can't. You can look at it, but you can't get it. What good is a toy that you can't play with? And that's the problem with home equity. It's on your balance sheet as an asset. Try getting it. It's impossible. Unless you're no longer going to stay in your home. And sadly, you're going to go into a nursing home or assisted living. Then you sell the home and all the wealth can be used to pay for your nursing home care or assisted living care. But if you want to start trying to consume some of those assets, and this is what you, listener and listeners in a similar situation to this particular emailer, it takes back to the first thing I wanted to mention, the seesaw. Who spends the money, the younger you or the older you? To Chris and I, the explicit promise is minimum dignity floor. And that's not being made here in the case of a survivor. So more work needs to be done. But afterwards, it is just a negotiation between the younger you and the older you. And I think if the older you, if you could actually talk to them, if there was a time machine where you could go into the future and talk to the you 15, 20, 25 years from now, I think they would say, hey, I'm willing to go on Medicaid if need be. We don't have enough for you to save everything for me because I might not need it. But you, you're here now. The younger me is here now. Let's get some memories. It's a negotiation. You've protected my minimum dignity floor. I'm going to give you permission to spend on fun. I'll go on Medicaid if I have to. And I think that's a... Mm -hmm. a, a, a conversation many people have to have with themselves. And that's where I think this listener is. I don't think there's going to be enough for you to earmark much of anything for aging. And you might not need it. And if you do need it, you might only need it for a month or two. Mm -hmm. There's just not enough money here. You are here now. You said you want to get this party going. So that's my thoughts. I'm, and certainly don't act on my thoughts. This is a decision you need to make. But if you were a client, I would be counseling with you that putting money aside, you don't have much money, listener. Even if you put a hundred or two hundred or two hundred fifty thousand off to the side to cover aging needs, that's not going to last very long. It might keep you out of Medicaid for a year or two. But if you got something that was truly going to suck your wealth and require LTC, such as a stroke or Parkinson's or dementia, the things that don't kill you but make you live for 8, 10, 12 years, you don't, it's not a matter of if you would go on Medicare. It would be a matter of when. Under my strategy, you'll just go on it a year or two earlier. But at least you'll have memories of the fun you did, unless you have dementia, then you won't have those memories. But you get my point. 
That's my thought, and it's just my thought. I'll let Chris share what he's thinking. Yeah, I think that's. I think I'm pretty much in alignment with what you are. I just don't see enough to do everything he's maybe wanting to do. How uh, out of the same pool of what appears to be just four hundred thousand left over uh, after kind of structuring the secure income, which still looks like it has a hole in it for the survivor. So, so some additional work needs to be done. Maybe having to use some more of that four hundred thousand just to get the minimum dignity floor covered for uh, uh, for his wife. That's that's something that that needs to be done. That's um, I don't think uh, if if they sat down and had a hard conversation that 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 would be the right trade off. That we're going to deal with all this, but oh, if I go first, you're just going to have to figure out how to bring in a roommate or something because the minimum dignity floor is too high um, for what I'm going to leave you if I go first. That uh, that that wouldn't be the way I would uh, recommend approaching it. But uh, uh, definitely. The whole story of trade-offs here, whole story of trade-offs. But I do think, not that we're, you know, might sound like we're pushing it a little hard, but uh, the the home equity story. We don't have all the details. We don't know how much their house is worth, what they're looking to downside. Or do we just know that they're thinking of doing it? And you know, maybe that might free up a little bit. But when you've got limited liquid assets, see if it makes sense to have a bunch of home equity sitting there that doesn't do anything for anybody until you die and leave it to someone else. Or until you have to go into a nursing home right. and sell it all. Right. Maybe it's better for you to utilize some of that to fill in some of these gaps to protect some of your priorities. There's a variety of ways to do it that Jim kind of mentioned. So, um, yeah, I think there's still some trade-offs to be to be discussed uh, and, and negotiated here between the, the younger couple here and the older couple. Okay. The final thing as we wrap this up, uh, he does ask, how do we recommend he invests the $400,000 that he has in reserve? Um, I'm not going to go that route, listener, because I don't know, because of all the reasons we shared with you, I'm not quite sure what those dollars are doing. But I would encourage you to protect it in the sense, if you're going to be trying to spend sixteen to 20000 a year of that on fun. I would take maybe minimum of eight, my preference, you can do whatever number you want, eight to 10 years of that and put it in a spending ladder. So you have to decide, am I going to spend, um, not 15 to 20, did you say 15 to 20 or 16 to 20? Yeah, 15 to 20,000 a year. Um, and put it in a spending ladder. Let's just say you decide to take the difference in 17,500 a year, put it in a spending ladder. You might want to buy a one-year CD with it and a two-year CD with it, maybe a three-year multi-year guaranteed annuity or those new uh, defined maturity exchange-traded funds that we've been talking about, utilizing tips so that spending of fun, that fifteen to 20000 is going to be tied, in my opinion, to recreational CPI because you want to spend that on fun. And unless you do a lot of air travel and hotel stays, recreation CPI is lower than headline CPI. And the tips will increase at headline CPI. So it is a good, fairly safe way of ensuring that your spending ladder for your fund is going to keep pace with inflation without taking on an undue amount of risk. Now, if you do a lot of travel and hotel stays, uh, tips may not keep pace with that inflation. 
and you may want to augment your tip reserve with something higher yielding or with a little bit of growth potential. But I would create a spending ladder for minimum eight to 10 years of your 15 to 20,000 a year. And the remaining dollars, I would put more towards growth. But again, I don't know your risk tolerance and how you see growth, but I would tend to favor some of those buffered products that we've talked about where because you could need this money sooner rather than later that can at least be tied to a reference asset. Uh, I've seen them tied to the Standard & Poor's, to the NASDAQ 100, to the Dow, whatever reference asset you want. But with some downside protection of 20, 25, 30% in any given 12-month period, remember these ETFs generally protect for 12 months before they renew, to have that downside protection to wipe out any potential market loss for the first 20, 25, 30%. Granted, your upside is capped, but if you're earmarking it towards CPI, uh, the potential cap rates right now are still double digits, far in excess of what inflation is. But at least it gives you better growth potential than a traditional tips ladder. So that's just a five-minute explanation of how I might evaluate allocating those dollars, that is not a recommendation for you. You don't indicate if you use an investment advisor or if you manage your own assets. My gut tells me you manage your own assets. So if you do, uh, again, grab that mirror, set it down in front of you, sit there and start talking to yourself and start doing your due diligence and figuring out how you want to handle it. But I would create a liquidity ladder or a spending ladder for to me, eight to 10 years of those dollars. And the rest, I would consider earmarking more towards growth. I know you don't deal with investments in the firm, Chris, but anything you want to add to that? Well, and that's assuming they've decided what those dollars' job is going to be, right? This, right, they're still which a big, they haven't uh, yet. Right, right, they're still up in the air because if it ter- turns out that they need to dedicate or choose to dedicate because it's a priority for them to stay off of Medicaid as long as possible – and they decide the vast majority of that is going to be, and we're going to wait for the inheritance to come in to do our fun. Um, I'm not saying that's the way to go. I'm saying if that's what they decide, then they would treat those numbers, those dollars very differently than what you described. So it's, it all depends on this. We talk about it all the time. How can we tell you what to do with your money unless we know what the money needs to do for you? And that's essentially admitting you got to assign the, the money a job first, figure out what it's trying to accomplish. Then you can start thinking about where you put it to accomplish that job most effectively. So they got some thinking to do first. That's right. All righty. Well, we beat this horse to death. I think we dived yep. into this over two successive shows. Hopefully listeners found this interesting, especially the people who always tell us the examples we use are always people with three, four, five million dollars. So here's a case where, no, people, this this gentleman doesn't have that much in wealth, a very typical situation. Retirement planning isn't easy. If it was, Chris and I wouldn't have a job. It's a negotiation. Hiring an advisor, I'm not advocating this person run out and hire an advisor. But learning all you can or hiring an advisor is the way to try to add some clarity and reasonableness to any decisions you make and basing them on a sound calculation and not necessary emotions. Anyways. Yeah, so I do want to um, 
point out to listeners, I did notice that Jim said, let the bag out of the cat. I didn't want to interrupt him at that moment, but before everyone emails and say he got one past me. No, I I said cat out of, I said cat out of the bag. No, you said the bag out of the cat and everybody knows and we have it on a recording. So <laughs> y'all can rewind and listen if you missed it. <laughs> so it was another thing I yeah. got you know I had a stroke, right? I got a dead spot in my mm-hmm. head. Yeah. So and he's, we're, so, we beat, we're beating the horse to death still, which is just an ongoing thing. Uh, so I'm, that, that's the way. I've been right. saying it this way for yeah. my whole life. I, oh, I and tell you, the people from New Jersey, they're on my side, they said. That's the way they say it in Jersey as well. Hmm. Maybe it's a Massachusetts Jersey thing. We Maybe go out so. and we beat horses to death. So are the bags Because we realize the stupidity of beating one that's already dead. <laughs> okay. So, well, on that note. We'll be up with a brand new topic next week with the EDU show. And uh, we appreciate everybody listening. And we'll be back with you next week with a brand new show. You have listened to Jim on the radio, read his quotes in the media, and enjoyed his banter on iTunes. But even now you may wonder what sets Jim Salmier and Associates apart from other financial planning companies. The answer is quite simple. Jim's diverse team of professionals specializes in retirement planning. They form a lifelong relationship with you and measure their success not through product sales, but through the security and prosperity you may achieve in your retirement. Jim's entire team shares his unwavering commitment to placing their clients' best interests first while offering their services at fair prices with full disclosures. The professionals at Jim Saulnier & Associates are available to assist you with your retirement planning needs. Visit jimhelps.com to schedule your complimentary coffee and a second opinion meeting. That's jim, H-E-L-P-S, dot com. Or call 970-530-0556. The Retirement and IRA Show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier & Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. 